0: Diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history, this show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto, Don Palumbo. Wow. Tonight is very special. It is very special. It really is. This is the live debut of Midwest Murder in South Dakota, and we're coming at you with a pretty packed house at Severns Brewing Company in Sioux Falls. It's so awesome. And this yeah, is lovely. I got to tell you, it feels pretty damn good to be here with all with you, Don Palumbo, and all you wonderful people in the audience. Thanks for making it out after two days of a blizzard. We can can relate. Yeah, Yeah. we're very relatable. And that's assuming you're all wonderful. It's a big enough crowd, so odds are at least one of you is a shit ass.
1: (laughs) There's a good chance it's probably me.
0: So big thanks to you guys for being here. Huge thanks to Severance for hosting us. Delicious beer. And thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed Midwest murder on iTunes and Spotify, the comments, feedback, and support. We really do appreciate that stuff. It helps other people check us out and it helps us kind of climb the rankings. And we really like that. And I think it's just really, it's really supportive. We love it, Don. So I'm kind of curious, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days?
1: Well, Delore the Destroyer, uh, five stars, long drives home. Minot is out of the way. I love my hometown, but I travel for work and returning home is a chore to put it nicely. Thank you so much for helping break up these three-day drives with something that not only keeps me awake, but thoroughly entertains. This morning, I left the Smoky Mountains. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that is a really long way to drive back home Um, from the Smoky Mountains to Minot. We don't... We don't have those in our parts. Um, This morning, I left the Smoky Mountains early and was driving through Louisville as the sun came up. The mountains and trees gave way into the big, sad expanse of flat with random leafless trees (laughs) that hated they were still existing somehow. (laughs) Although the content of your show isn't necessarily uplifting, it made my day infinitely better.
0: That's I feel like I, I
1: feel like he should start, or he or she uh, should start um, writing for me because that was that was beautiful. I was right there with the picture. That Very was great. Thorough. The yeah. trees
0: hate their own existence. <laughs> <And then>
1: <laughs> That's fine. You know, come February, I'll hate my own existence too. We didn't hate the
0: trees. The the hoarfrost on them in the winter no, time. No, no, it kept. Don't its, it, underestimate. It, no, them. it
1: is gorgeous. Coffee a go go. Four stars. Always interesting. I enjoy listening to the show most of the time. Some shows are a bit too much for me, but that is personal preference. My only. Criticism is that I feel Don is a bit too critical of police and jumps quickly to the conclusion that police didn't do a good job. I won't say police don't make mistakes, but I do feel they are hardworking, good people who deserve our respect. Keep up the good work. I look forward to each new episode. Thank you for the feedback. And um, also, I thought
0: it was me who's more harsh <laughs> on police, but I guess and, that's uh, you.
1: And and if I if I may, as someone who was raised by a cop, was married to a cop, and uh, and also a correctional officer. I support them just fine I mean and in my opinion I don't I'm not I'm not quick to too quick to jump on them I, I try to give credit where credit is due and um
0: no one is above reproach on Midwest murder
1: no I no I I think we're gonna we're gonna point out if you did a shitty job and, absolutely and and also but but I think it's
0: that we was, don't that dwell was on it.
1: actually that was me just being tough I I think what what it
0: uh Don tough guy Palumbo. I,
1: usually uh usually tough guy Tuesday over here um I I think what it what it actually comes down to is um it's It's understanding that, yeah, it might, what might be what we call shitty police work now, but in the seventies or eighties or nineties or whatever, that's how it was then. I mean, it wouldn't be up to today's standards, but that's because all things evolve. But regardless, I appreciate the, uh, the feedback. I think it's awesome. It's good or bad.
0: Thanks for popping into the iTunes. Drop us a drop, drop us a quick review. It doesn't take very much time and we really, really do appreciate that. You can now get merch at too many slash Midwest murder. Midwest, Midwest murder. Dash murder. Uh, we have several new sayings and phrases and, and things that you guys have suggested and redesigned. We really do appreciate your support on that. You can also buy us a hot dish at a www.buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest murder. Shout out to all of our Buy Me A Coffee members. And this show is brought 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 to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? Midwest Memoirs is here to help you capture the most precious memories of your loved ones as told in their voice. This is done with research of your family member and completed through a professionally guided interview in a comfortable studio setting using state-of-the-art recording equipment. The most important stories we'll ever hear are those of the people we love most. Contact Midwest Memoirs today on Facebook or Instagram. On this episode of Midwest Murder, we're heading back to the 70s. Starting in 1974, Richard Nixon- I was became, never
1: actually in the 70s, so not I, me I, I
0: like But I'm this. going back. Yeah, I like it. going back. Richard Nixon became the first US president to resign following the Watergate scandal. He's later pardoned that year in full by President Gerald Ford 26-year-old Stephen King published his first novel, Don Palumbo Trivia. Do you know what novel it was? 26-year-old Stephen King, 1974. How much time do I have? Right um, now. The, Instant.
1: The, the Green Mile was a short story. Uh, and so um, Cujo, Christine,
0: at Cujo, Christine, great guesses. No, you were in correct. the right territory with the C. Carrie, the first oh, gosh, published novel by Stephen King. Yeah.
1: And then the movie adaptation, um, also starring John Travolta as one of the, the jackass guys. Anyway.
0: I'm, in 1974, yeah. the 55 mile an hour speed limit was introduced to reduce gas. That
1: the would l- that would be absolute torture at this, at this point. That, that would, be, right, we, that we would drove, be punishment. We drove 85 here yeah. according to the speed limit. It was it was within the speed. We'd still be driving we if we still, had the drive 55 all the way here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: I would. The like, legendary like Sammy Hagar, the legendary Rumble in the Jungle Sweet. boxing match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman took place in Kinshasa, Zaire. The Sears Tower in Chicago became the world's tallest building. Popular household foods included hamburger helper, Jello salad, deviled eggs, and Muggle lunch. I, I who remembers Muggle lunch, huh?
1: And in the seventies, there were so many freaking things put in aspic. Like, you know, it was like in a a gelatinous, weird, like here, I made this, I made this fish salad and I put it in jello for you. Like what? Seriously, we have, we are better than that.
0: The most popular toys were a spirograph Tonka trucks, wooden toboggans, spider bikes, and BB guns. And in 1974, this world changing event occurred. Atari released the home version of Pong, the first home video game of all time. Big moment. Things were different back then. That's a phrase we've uttered more than our fair share of times on Midwest murder, and today is no different as we venture into the red-light district of Madison, Wisconsin, circa 1970s, when massage parlors were very successful. It was a time when... Therapeutic touch meant going above, beyond, below, in, around, you name it.
1: I feel like you were hinting at something, um, you know.
0: We'll see. The first parlor to open was the Shape Ship in 1970. By 1974, Madison was home to 42 massage parlors.
1: 42? I mean, Madison is like a Midwest town. I mean, what, 200,000 people maybe then? Uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Just just west of Milwaukee. It's a lot of happy endings. The owners claim to strictly forbid prostitution. Being nude and offering full-body, genital, sexual massages was perfectly legal. These were sensitivity encounters, not sex work. What a time to be alive! Wow. For the most part, and it was legal. Yeah, totally legal for the most part. Business happily operated without public scrutiny from 1970 to 1974. But eventually, all good things must come to an end. And so, I mean, <sighs> enter okay. Reverend Richard Pritchard. He took up the massage. He took up the charge against massage parlors, and no, that's not a made-up name for a cartoon reverend. Okay, he's real. Reverend Richard Pritchard collected nearly 12,000 signatures demanding an ordinance that banned sexual massages, which forced the hand of city council to bring the issue to a public vote.
1: I mean, can you you blame him? I mean, it feels, I guess it was 1974,
0: you know, whatever. And before we poo-poo Reverend Richard Pritchard too much, I got to give this guy credit. In the 1960s, he was a very strong civil rights advocate, a stance that got him ousted from a position of influence in the Westminster Presbyterian Church because he, quote, loves Negroes. Pritchard went on to form his own more progressive congregation, but not quite so progressive that he could allow commercial masturbation in his fair city. During the 1975 anti-massage push, Pritchard became a target of threatening phone calls, one caller said, quote, get off the massage parlor kick or I'll blow your wife's legs off. And this was no idle threat. Many of the parlor owners of Madison, Wisconsin, were notorious people connected to the mafia and criminal underworld. There was a lot more being passed around at these sensitive contact centers than HJs and STDs. Quaaludes, cocaine, marijuana, uppers, downers, and illegal gambling were among the many off-menu services provided.
1: Am I am I old enough to be hearing this story? Absolutely. Like I feel like it's. I, I mean, I feel like this is uh, it's gonna it's gonna get a little a little awkward Oh here, yeah, maybe. she's gonna get
0: feisty. <laughs> One parlor owner had a felony record for distributing pornographic videos that were confiscated by local police. It's just so weird to think that, like, I, had, I, have this, I sold some illegal porn VHSs. That's a, that's a felony offense. So naturally, these illegal pornos led to private watch parties at officers' home and even once at the station, a scandal that got leaked to local papers and caused no shortage of embarrassment for public servants of Madison. It also helped fuel things for old Reverend Pritchard. So, Reverend Richard Pritchard's efforts ushered in a 1975 vote in which citizens of Madison passed legislation banning sexual massages and requiring parlors to be licensed. It also stipulated parlor owners had to have a clean criminal record for at least three years. Things kind of backfired for the Reverend because business skyrocketed thanks to all the free press and attention brought to the parlors. Parlor, parlor owners, led by the disreputable William Garrett, Counter sued, arguing the new law was suppression of legal business. Most of the parlors closed two days after the ban went into effect on April fifteenth, but their entrepreneurial resolve would not be softened. Owners pivoted and started offering nude oriental wrestling, nude dancing, and nude body painting. And by offering sexual consulting instead of massages,
1: that's not. That's not us using... No, no, no. That that was their... That's their language. That's a a quote. Yes. We're not... Yeah. Yep. That's
0: their language. By offering sexual consulting instead of massages, owners claimed their business was no longer bound by parlor laws. This prompted another hearing with the city council on April 29th. Sam Serro, a cocaine kingpin and local gangster, was the only owner to show up in defense of the parlor business. Quote, he told city council... You come in for a body massage, you're going to get a complete body massage. We massage every itsy bitsy part. (laughs) Business carried on as usual while the legal challenge played out in court. By August of 1975, it was no longer the owners fighting the ordinance. Employees signed on with the lawsuit against the city. Enter masseuse Barbara Hoffman an aspiring young University of Wisconsin student with a brilliant academic background in biochemistry and a 3.9 GPA through nearly four years of attending college. This was the first time Barbara's name ever appeared in papers, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. An impeccable combination of intelligence and beauty, Barbara's genius was certifiable. She had an IQ of 145. Her talents and potential were boundless. Barbara spoke three languages. She was a member of the National Honor Society, and she could play the French horn. But in 1974, the year prior to this lawsuit, with one semester left to earn a bachelor's degree, Barbara quit school to work at Jan's Health Studio. Let me tell you, at Jan's, she was blowing a lot more than horns.
1: Oh my gosh. My gosh.
0: Hoffman excelled at the massage parlor, thriving in the dark, mysterious, and transactional underworld. Barbara Hoffman evolved into a seductress like no other. December 25th, 1977. Christmas morning. Jerry Davies is so nervous, he staggers into the Madison PD like some village drunkard waddles up to the officer on duty and blurts out last night I helped bury a body in a snowbank
1: who buries a body in a snowbank
0: it's not a great place That's <laughs> have not given criminal advice but it's a snowbank so Davies then led several officers along with the DA and coroner to a snowbank on Tomahawk Ridge a few minutes east of Madison the frozen arm of a corpse awkwardly jutting out from a snow pile was unmistakable Officers slowly removed the snow in stages so each section of the body could be photographed, eventually exposing a naked white male. His head was beaten and full of contusions, his face a mask of dried, frozen blood and bruises, and it got worse as they uncovered the lower half of his body. His genitals were smashed and grotesquely swollen. The testicles blackened and bloated. Merry fucking Christmas, said one of the cops. It was negative 41 degrees.
1: Oh, that's cold. No no wonder they just went with a snowbank. I mean, (laughs) I'm not supporting it. I'm just saying the 70s were wild.
0: Wild. Davy seemed relieved to see the body was still there. He just wanted this to be over, but it wasn't going to be that easy. At the station, he was interrogated for over four hours, a grueling process, and entirely not how any officer wanted to spend Christmas Day Davies hadn't slept in days. He was dirty, nervous, shaky, appearing older and more fragile than his 31 years of age. According to Davies, when he arrived at the home of his fiance Barbara Hoffman, she shockingly revealed that she discovered a body in the bathtub of her home when she came home earlier that night. Hoffman didn't know what to do or how the body got there. In a panic, she managed to drag the body outside and dump it in the alley. Now she needed his help to get rid of the body. Jerry Davies met his fiance at Jan's Health Club in 1974.
1: When you say health club,
0: do you mean like, that's Walt, the name, like
1: Walt Jan's
0: Health, health club.
1: club, like a, you know, with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of thing. Is that... Nudge,
0: nudge, wink, okay. wink, and much okay. more. Absolutely. Okay. Everything in between of that and below and above, and you name it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But listen, every direction. Jerry met her at Jan's, and let me tell you, as he told those cops, they were in love. And he lived for her smile, for her touch, and although he was uncomfortable with every aspect of hiding that body, Jerry Davies agreed to help her relocate the body away from her apartment. While investigators pondered whether to consider him a suspect or a witness, Davies was booked for abetting a felon. They reflected on everything they learned about Davies and gradually leaned toward him being more witness than suspect. He was the youngest of four kids raised in poverty by a single mother. He spent three aimless semesters at uh, college in Madison, and he returned to Spring Green literally every weekend to hang out with his mom and attend all of the high school sporting events. He was employed at the university, making copies in their AV department, earning about $10,000 a year. And that doesn't sound like much, but it was equal to $53,000 a year back then. So about the averaging.
1: Holy shit. I mean, you know, I, I, I love what we do here and, uh, and all those things. But if I could make, you know, $53,000 just making copies, like where do I sign up? Like making like, video
0: copies, but yeah.
1: Right. Well, make, I don't make copying. Not I don't, Xeroxing. I don't give a shit what I'm copying. Like $53,000. To like, copy sign some me up. shit, I'll yeah, do it. I'll do it. No questions asked.
0: So Davies was very much a regular Joe, or should I say, John. The course of his life undoubtedly changed the day he worked up the courage to visit Jan's health studio. Jan's was the most notorious of all massage parlors in Madison, and sex was probably the most innocent thing you could spend money on at Jan's. Whatever your kink was, Jan sold it along with the drugs or dope you needed in order to achieve maximum pleasure from every dollar spent at Jan's. It was where Gerald Davies got his prick touched by someone else for the first time.
1: Don't ever say that again. Oh, my gosh. Just
0: telling the story like it is, Don Palumbo. Let me tell you. That
1: is disgusting. Oh, my gosh. Jan's Health
0: Studio, that's where Davies got his first orgasm that wasn't self-administered.
1: Well, that's a nicer way of saying it. Thank you.
0: On Davies' third visit to Jan's Health Studio, he met Barbara. She was different from the other girls, more natural. She was shy yet promiscuous and didn't rush him. Instead, she coddled Gerald Davies, caressed and touched him while splashing in conversation. Initially, Davies visited Jan's once a month, but after a few visits with Barbara, Jerry Davies couldn't get enough. He returned more frequently and always requested Barb, often waiting in the lobby for an hour or more while she served other customers. When Barbara suggested to Davies they extend the relationship beyond the confines of Jan's health studio, Jerry Davies was elated. This was his first girlfriend. In May of 1976, Barbara retired from Jan's, took a clerical position at a bank, and returned to school part-time. The two dated, but she didn't have a car, so Davies chauffeured her to work every day. Aside from that, Davies wasn't allowed more than one or two dates a week with his fiance. Gerald Davies explained to officer Chuck Lulling that he rarely had sexual contact with Barbara. She had intimacy problems and struggled with physical love after leaving the studio. She was in therapy for it. So
1: hang on. I'm I'm getting, I'm getting, um, Adam's family values vibes like, uh, Debbie, the uncle Fester's girlfriend. Anybody? Mm. Yeah. No, really? Have you guys watched the movie ever? Like
0: one time? Dang. But you're seeing it
1: anyway. Nobody cares. Can't relate. I tried.
0: So it was business as usual on the morning of December 23rd, 1977, when Davies brought Hoffman to work. Davies was worried about their relationship. Things had felt a little different ever since she postponed the wedding earlier that spring. That night, They spent time listening to music at Jerry's place before returning to Barbara's apartment for a nightcap of orange soda, vodka, and Johnny Carson. The two dozed off together on the couch. Around 2.30 a.m., Davies was startled awake by Hoffman. That's when she laid the news on him about the body. Jerry, listen carefully. When I got home from work yesterday, there was a body in my bathtub—a dead body. I got scared. I didn't know what to do. I don't know who it is.
1: This is a day later.
0: Like it- this is this is that. This is the the night. This is Jerry explaining okay. to the police right. but like, but how the, it broke But the body down. had
1: been there for over a day. Like work from yesterday, right? Like
0: this. She's saying when I got home today, there was a body in my bathtub. Okay. that was on the twenty-third. So two thirty okay. a.m. would be Christmas Eve morning, technically. Call the police, Jerry told her. We can't do that, Jerry. How can I explain a dead body in the bathtub? The cops will implicate me. I think people from Jans are behind this. They want to get me in deep trouble. We have to get rid of it before anyone knows. Jerry was scared. He was reluctant. He wanted to call the cops. God damn it, Jerry. My life has been messed up for too long. I'm finally pulling the pieces together and now this? I don't even know who this is. But whoever it is, his life is over and mine isn't. I can't be connected with this body. So it was around 4 or 5 a.m. when they finally loaded the frozen, sheet-covered body into Jerry's vehicle and drove it out the Tomahawk Ridge. When it was done, Barbara instructed Jerry to vacuum the car and scrub it clean with K2R cleaner. Davies went on to spend an awkward Christmas Eve at his mother's house, submerged this year not just in the shadow of his brother's success, but also in his own thoughts of Barbara and the body. The warrant for Barbara's apartment was issued by Christmas afternoon. Aside from the officer on duty from the station, none of the police who got called into work were sober. The tropical environment of Barb's apartment didn't help. Barb had a green thumb. Her thermostat was set at 79 degrees and there were plants everywhere. Spider plants hanging from the ceilings, trees and ferns, exotic flowers. One cop was so hammered, he was given orders to just sit on the couch and not puke on anything. He passed out.
1: Okay, so. Do you want to jump uh, in with the. So want to again, jump in? <laughs> we do things a little differently and it would be horseshit, uh, a horseshit job. Uh, what do today. you think
0: about that police work done, Palumbo?
1: I mean, but it's okay. I'm not, I mean, he probably did a great job, I'm sure.
0: So police didn't find much of it. Yeah, he really locked that mm-hmm. couch down, let yep, me tell you. Yeah. Yep. Guarded that fucker like no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So police didn't find much of anything. And their observations, they said there was a vast bookshelf of chemistry books and plant books and sex books, some kinky photos of Barb and other women. Although not taken as evidence, it was observed she had books on toxic substances, on forensic pathology. There was no indication in her apartment of a struggle. There was no blood, no weapons, no fibers. Police sifted and scraped scraped through snow where the body was said to have been initially discarded in the alley, but came came away with nothing, no blood, no clues from the alley or anything. They took an they took an address book, some laundry, and a few latent fingerprints.
1: Oh, wait, did it was originally in an alley, not the bathtub?
0: The bath according to Jerry's story, what Barb told him it was in a oh, bathtub. Okay. She drug it to the alley. Okay. needed Jerry's okay. help to get it from the alley to his car to Tomahawk Ridge.
1: Gotcha. I am I'm having a hard time keeping up with Barb. I mean she's Barb's
0: a fast mover.
1: <clears throat> yeah, clearly.
0: Lieutenant Detective Lulling was a 20-year veteran, a total hard case individual. He was not a standard procedure guy. Lulling didn't do things by the book because he was around since before the damn book existed.
1: And he was not the one that passed out on the couch?
0: No. Okay. He was, he was on duty when, when Davies <laughs> came in. Gotcha. Following Davies' shaky confession and the search of Hoffman's apartment, Lulling insisted on confronting Barbara Hoffman that very day. He was advised against this by his partner, a rookie, but Lulling was like, no, this is going to be some young girl. This guy's already said she's guilty. We're going to go hammer her right now. And he's like, you sure? You found no evidence at the apartment. He's like, no, we're going. She was three hours away in Park Ridge at her parents' home. Lulling enlisted the help and cooperation of police there. He also had the boys start digging through missing person reports, which led to the likely name of their victim, Harry Burge. Burge's body was identified by his brother-in-law. Burge was described as being a loner with very few friends and no family aside from his sister. Once they had his name, they immediately started searching for Berge's vehicle. The coroner was finally able to confirm the cause of death as bludgeoning to the head. Blunt force trauma. It was after 9.30 p.m., still Christmas Day, when investigators arrived at Hoffman's parents' house. She agreed to come in for questioning And Lulling was surprised at her appearance. He was expecting some dolled-up hussy, but she was delicate, poised with small lips, large-brimmed glasses, and sharp eyes. Lulling confronted her at the station with Davy's confession and a veiled threat of her arrest for the murder of Harry Burge. Barbara Hoffman's response? Fuck you, I want a lawyer. Lulling was pissed. Then Barb asked, am I under arrest? They told her no. She got up and walked out saying Merry Christmas as she walked out the door. Barb first contacted Al Mackie, a former John from Jans. As a client, Mackie fell for Barb's shy, sensual style. It was so drastically different and better feeling than other girls. There was always a wait to be with Barbie. But Mackie didn't mind. He was among her select clientele who visited with Barbara outside of the parlor. She was a fantastic, intelligent, and capable companion. They went sailing into the theater. Mackie generously offered his legal services. Meanwhile, a second warrant was issued for Hoffman's apartment, and several more items were confiscated and sent to the lab, including throw rugs and towels from the bathroom. And they found a a manila... Envelope hidden in a closet containing the personal effects of one Linda Millar, a receipt, P.O. box key, bank records, a passbook, library card, and a letter addressed to Linda Millar sent to Barbara Hoffman's address. Investigators weren't sure who Linda Linda Millar was, but they were grasping for any clue, so they took the envelope. Davies still being held at this time, was more worried about Barbara's reaction to his betrayal. He asked the cops if they knew whether or not she was going to cancel their wedding. Davies also told police there was no way Barb had other men in her life. Furthermore, Davies insisted Barb would never kill someone. From the evidence, the crime lab produced nothing. No hair, blood, fingerprints, clothing threads, or physical evidence that connected Burge to Hoffman's apartment, or Hoffman to Burge, or the dumpster. By December 26th, the body of Harry Burge was thought enough to perform the official autopsy, and it was confirmed he died before exposure, and that the desecration of his genitalia occurred post-mortem. And Burge had undiagnosed advanced cancer in his right kidney, would have likely died within a year. Burge died about an hour and a half after eating a large meal and drinking a coffee. Burge, like Davies, was a loner who lived under the same roof as as his parents until they each died. As far as his sister knew, Burge was celibate and never had a girlfriend at any point in his life. He occasionally went to the movies, bowled once a week, and had an elaborate model train set up with hundreds of feet of railing. According to his sister, Burge wore the same outfit every day, a gray work shirt, trousers, and a matching cap. She came over once a week to iron his clothes and tidy up a little. One thing everyone who knew Harry Burge agreed on, from his neighbors to family and coworkers, he was rigidly punctual. According to coworkers at the factory, Burge was a strange, quiet man that didn't drink alcohol, use tobacco, do drugs, or even use cuss words. But then, during a lunch break, Burge overheard chatter about the massage parlors of Madison, and he unveiled an extensive knowledge and history of parlor visits backed up with photos. Receipts uncovered at his house totaled $1,630 spent in the last year at parlors, mostly on lonely hearts Sundays and holidays. By December 28th, police had executed four search warrants on Hoffman's apartment, which produced no evidence. Lulling also tried to get Davies to wear a wire during a meeting with Hoffman, but Davies had a nervous breakdown at the idea and it was quickly abandoned. Instead, they sent a few plainclothes detectives into a local dive bar, the KK Club, where Davies met Barbara. But Hoffman was smart. First thing she says to him, I'll bet they got you wired to the fucking heavens. And he's like geeked out and he's freaking out. And the undercovers tried to listen in on their convo, but it was useless. The bar was too loud. Whatever was exchanged between the two, police couldn't hear. Through meticulous interviewing, not just of those who knew Davies, but of hundreds of people in the houses and apartments surrounding the area. Excuse me, not just of those who knew Burge, the deceased. Interviews of those who knew Burge, the deceased. Lulling pieced together a timeline for Harry Burge. Burge clocked out from work at 7 p.m. on the 23rd and went directly to the company Christmas party where he ate a large meal. He declined to attend the after party, suggesting to co-workers he had plans in Madison, then drove home, changed out of his work clothes, and went to the city, arriving somewhere around 9 p.m. And it all lined up with the time of death. But how did he die? Why would Barbara Hoffman kill him? What was the motive? If he drove to Hoffman's house, where was his vehicle? And if it was premeditated, why do it in the apartment? It was a third-floor apartment. Then Lulling started wondering if perhaps Davies had actually killed Burge at Barb's apartment in a fit of jealousy. What if Davies just showed up, found them together, and freaked out? The violent manner of Burge's death felt more like a man's work, maybe with a frying pan in the kitchen.
1: I was going to make a joke about inequality, but it's probably not the time. Never mind. We can, let's, let's move on. I was to say, on. it
0: sounds very Clue too, though. No, he did it with the frying with the pan frying in the pan. kitchen. I don't remember. But this is lulling piecing, you know, piecing it together, but it sounds very Clue.
1: Yeah. I don't remember fr- the frying pan as the, as one of the, the, the pieces in Clue, but I mean, maybe it's a different version.
0: It's not. No, it's the <laughs> advanced version. Yeah. <laughs> More information trickled in. The Burge estate was altered in October of 1977. For five years since his mother's death, Burge had not removed her name as beneficiary. Then, he showed up to the lawyer's office unannounced and changed the will to leave everything to his fiance, Linda Millar. One week later, he signed the documents to make it official, but officers in the investigation could find no trace of Linda Millar. Rumor on the street was that Hoffman didn't fully retire from her former profession at Jans. She went private and took the majority of her best clients with her. Shoes were strictly forbidden in her home and neighbors frequently noticed the wide variety of different shoes outside her door at all hours. Expensive leather dress shoes, work boots, athletic sneakers, they were all there. Lulling didn't learn much about Barbara Hoffman She changed her phone number regularly, including five times in 1977. Her college transcripts were exceptional. Coworkers at the bank didn't really know her. On the streets of Madison, Hoffman carried a renowned reputation as the queen of massage parlors, but it seemed nobody really knew who Barbara Hoffman truly was. Detective Lulling then confronted The infamous and notoriously violent owner of Jan's health studio, William Garrett, a 6'4 tower of a man with a passion for physical punishment. He once smashed a man's face into the grill of a hot car and then used his face like a cheese grater. Garrett was mafia, and Lulling went straight to Garrett's home to ask questions about Hoffman. But the old crime boss claimed, He didn't know shit. Lowing's like you own Jan's. She worked there for two years. Garrett, fuck you. I don't know her. I feel like I I feel like as somebody who can
1: use a you know grill of a car as a cheese grater on someone's face. I feel like he said it classier, right? Like
0: I know, I know. If no, he was very blunt. I I
1: would like. I mean, but
0: he said, "I don't know shit." Yeah. But Lowing told Garrett he'd catch a big favor for any information leading to the arrest of Burge's killer. When Detective Lowling left, Garrett called his lawyer, Don Eisenberg. The value of a favor from the DA wasn't lost on William Garrett. His old pal and partner, Sam Cerro recently tried to buy $72,000 worth of cocaine from undercover cops. He was facing 15 years. A scheme began to hatch. Remember this.
1: Should I write that down? I feel like
0: I, I... January 6th. No additional arrests have been made, but it's warm outside. The snow's melted. Lulling tells, tells them, go search the alley again where Burge's body was dumped. They find nothing. They still have no clue who Linda Millar was.
1: Okay, I do. Like I, mean, the, I think we
0: all do. I think in we, the end, it was Jerry Davies who revealed the true identity of Linda Millar during a casual conversation with the DA. It was an alias created by Barbara Hoffman after she left Jans. Barb wanted to leave that life behind and the best way to do it was to change her name. Barbara even had him, Jerry Davies, send Linda an empty letter one time to Barbara's residence. So this suggested a motive to lulling. Hoffman was Millar and two months before Burge died, he transferred his estate and life insurance to Millar. Hoffman planned Burge's death and her motive was money. But this still wasn't quite enough to make an arrest, and more strange information emerged. Jerry Davies, the shipping clerk with a salary of less than $10,000, attempted to take out a $3 million life insurance policy with O'Donohue and Associates in the early months of 1977. As proof of income to fund said policy, Davies claimed a silent ownership of four. Madison Massage Parlors. The return of his investment was more than $1,500 a month. According to Davies and his fiancée, Barbara Hoffman, Davies wanted a large policy to defer his tax burden. And it was all pretty shady, but an agent managed to get Davies insured for $750,000 with an annual premium of 13236 dollars Hoffman and Davies made two separate payments with cashier's checks six months apart. With that revelation, police felt Davies' life was in danger, but Jerry refused to believe Barbara Hoffman would ever hurt him, or anyone else for that matter, and and he refused police protection. Nonetheless, unbeknownst to him, he was placed under 24-hour surveillance. When the last witness at Barbara's building was finally tracked down and interviewed, the case got another dose of information. This tenant read the Bible every morning at 5 a.m., and on this day, they heard a car door and possibly a trunk close on the morning of December 24th at 5 a.m. during Bible study. Although it was admittedly quite dark, the witness claims he plainly saw Hoffman and someone else outside in a black car with a white cover. It matched the description of Burge's missing Oldsmobile. The vehicle backed into the alley, out of his sight, and the man went back to Bible studies. He saw Hoffman in the hallway about one hour later. She was carrying a basket of laundry. By now, Hoffman's attorney, Al Mackey, could tell this case was getting above his head. After several prominent lawyers declined to take her as a client, Barbara was accepted by a bombastic criminal attorney with highly questionable ethics, Don Eisenberg. This murder story was already being sensationalized in the press, and it was going to be a big deal. And Don Eisenberg thrived in these situations. Remember Eisenberg's name? I do. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So Eisenberg calls the DA, offering a deal. He says... He has a massive dollop of information relevant to the case. He can give the DA the last person to see Berge alive and the first person to see him dead, the whereabouts of Berge's car and why they couldn't find it, and motives for the murder, as well as evidence of prior conspiracy to commit murder and corroborating statements from new witnesses. In return, Eisenberg wanted the dismissal of criminal charges against William Garrett for an unregistered firearm, as well as illegal gambling charges to be dropped against two other criminal associates. And lastly, a suspended sentence for Garrett's old buddy, Sam Cerro on the cocaine bust. Cerro was facing 15 federal years, and not only did he not want to do that time, his life would be in danger in federal prison because of his mafia and criminal connections in Madison. Eisenberg, was not only representing Barbara Hoffman, he also represented all these massage parlor owners slash criminals. And somehow he was attempting to negotiate a deal for all of them.
1: I, I, I kind of feel like that maybe goes against ethics or something I, like a tiny bit. Correct. Okay.
0: Yeah. I kind of Major you know. conflict of interest. The DA declined the offer and wanted nothing to do with what they said because of that blatant conflict.
1: Like, and I mean, how do they keep it straight? I feel like I needed a flowchart for the deal that he just worked out. Like I'm I'm still, that's a lot. It's very articulate. yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
0: On January 18th, Barbara Hoffman was arrested for the murder of Harry Birch. On January 19th, police again scoured the alley for signs of blood sifting through snow piled as high as four feet. This time miraculously a red substance was found about 4 inches off the ground. They took samples, sent it to the lab, and 3 weeks later it came back as a match to the same blood type as Harry Burge, not his actual blood. They could just they could only well, go so far was, as to say it that was, was blood the 70s. type. I mean, right. That yep. was
1: we're back in the secretor non-secretor days that it grosses me out just the, saying the words, but uh, so they couldn't find any at the time of the of when they the first supposedly found three him, three
0: times. They okay, went so they that were there alley. three times,
1: but and then all of a sudden,
0: a um, day after the arrest. Oh look!
1: Right, and blood is red. Snow is typically white, maybe a little dirty or yellow, but either way, it's going to <laughs> yeah like an alley, it's, especially it's maybe going yellow. to stick out.
0: Yes, Mike. Somehow, it didn't those first few times. Okay, I mean maybe it's because they were shit faced that first day. I don't know. It was Christmas. It was Christmas. I don't blame them for that one. I really don't. They weren't, they were not even supposed to be here today, you know. Eisenberg's office represented many of the business dealings between the massage parlor owners slash criminals, but they were technically represented by the junior attorneys of the office and not Eisenberg directly directly. Eisenberg wanted the notoriety of this case so bad, but he didn't want to give up any of his clients, especially lucrative ones like Sam Serro and his crew. He asked Hoffman to sign an affidavit acknowledging the unique circumstances and stating she wanted to retain Eisenberg anyways. She signed it. Probably shouldn't have. Eisenberg handled the throng of media attention with panache. Barb mostly hid behind him during her arrest. Everybody converged on that courthouse. Her sexual prowess was the talk of the town, the most desired vixen of the Madison massage parlor scene. She handled the kinkiest of clients. It was said a special silent room was built for Barb's customers at Jan's so she could punish them in a way that prevented their screams from being heard by regular clients. One rumor suggested she was earning nearly $25,000 a year from working three days a week at Jan's. I pretty good money.
1: I am absolutely no mathematician, but if 10,000 equals 50, 53,000, I feel like 25,000 equals a lot more. Like, uh, yeah. So,
0: hundred. Yeah. We don't do math here.
1: Yeah. But, um,
0: not on the spot anyways. No. Any I, math and, I've ever done in the show was vastly pre-planned.
1: And if I, if I do math, it, it's absolutely wrong. It's like um,
0: shorthand. Yeah. Barbara was released on a $15,000 bond. Following the arrest, Davy was a wreck and he got his Valium prescription upped from 10 pills to 30. He couldn't sleep. Everything haunted him. With the trial pending, the two lovebirds spent nearly every day together. Detective Lulling feared for the safety of Davies, the case's main witness, and took up personal surveillance after the higher-ups ruled it was too expensive to have officers watch Davies around the clock they let that insurance premium, so that $750,000 insurance premium, that was lapsing in February, just one month after this arrest. So it was all coming to a crush right here. Barb wasn't going to make the payment, had no intention of making the payment. Unbeknownst to her, Davies still felt obligated to make that life insurance payment. And he unsuccessfully loaned out a bunch of money trying to pay the $6,000 premium. He also went ahead and got Barb, his fiance listed as the beneficiary for everything else he had, including a few life insurance policies through work, as well as the deed to his property.
1: Oh dear, I feel like this is just not
0: going to go well. Davies insisted on doing this and he put it, in, put it in writing on March 7th, 1978, quote, I have of my own free will, as an act of love and trust and affection without any influence from Barbara Hoffman or any other individual made the changes in ownership and beneficiary clauses of my life insurance policies. In February, Jerry Davies had brought Barbara to his his mother's house for dinner and Ruth was shocked that Jerry had made an impression on such a beautiful, smart young girl. Ruth made tuna noodle casserole and the three enjoyed a quaint but pleasant evening.
1: Nothing nothing says the the 70s more than that like entire sentence. You know, the mother is, you know, absolutely just shocked that her piece of shit son, you know, can get a can get a lady, right? Cuz I mean, it was, it was more very, lonely you know, than, yeah. it was very it, I'm not saying he was a piece of shit, <laughs> no, but I'm just but, but it was very toxic, you know, like yeah. a, and then uh and then she made tuna noodle casserole. Like I mean it just it's you sounds like my, like my mother. You can house. just like
0: hear her voice yeah. saying, offering it too. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and you know, and even saying something bad to Jerry, poor Jerry, I feel bad for Jerry. I feel like this is just not going to, going to go well. And I, so I'm I'm not, I wasn't, to, to clarify, I was not calling him a piece right. of shit. Like it's,
0: this is a mother know, who knows, a, yeah, she knows her son conference. is an underwhelming man. Okay. Right. Let's be real. She yeah. knows her son is an underwhelming man. And she, he walks in with this stunning, intelligent beauty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then serves, she knows what's, tuna what's up. Tuna, noodle like, casserole. Oh, tuna noodles. <laughs> The prosecutors knew Davies might crumble under the reality of testifying against the woman he loved, but the tension surrounding that fear for his life faded in late February when the insurance policy for $750,000 on his life lapsed. On March 27th, two weeks prior to Barb's arraignment, the lead crime reporter in Madison, Wisconsin, Anita Clark, received a letter postmarked from March 25th. It read, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with a body at all. She never did. I went crazy. I was so scared. The police scared me. I was crazy and I didn't know what I was saying. Then... I had to keep telling the same story, or they would charge me with a crime. Now they did it to Barb instead, and I don't know what to do anymore except tell the truth. I'm not crazy anymore, and I'm not scared. I want to tell the truth. I'm not afraid to go to jail. Barb never had anything to do with the body at all. I swear it, and they can do whatever they want to me. Sincerely, Gerald Thomas Davies. An identical handwritten letter was also written and sent to the assistant DA. Prosecutors considered calling Davies that day, but instead chose not to respond. They said, we're going to let him stew on this for a few days. They weren't going to back down from the trial now. His original statement was already on record. Across town, also on the afternoon of March 27th, tenants in the apartment building at 2305 South Park Street called to complain about a loud, clattering ceiling fan in the unit below. At 3.20 p.m., after no one answered the door, the maintenance man and resident manager entered the premises. It was the apartment of Gerald Davies. The noise wasn't disturbing him. Jerry's apartment was clean and orderly. On the kitchen table, he'd arranged a collection of grocery store bingo cards from Kohl's with cut-out paper squares. He was one coupon shy of winning a free cart full of groceries. The drapes were open, permitting a gray, wintry light. The still, quiet, and eerie atmosphere of his apartment was broken only by the shrilling fan. It was warm and stuffy. The thermostat set to 79 degrees. Gerald Davies was found in the bathtub.
1: Oh, man.
0: Feet propped up on the porcelain next to the faucet, hands covering his genitals, barely submerged in just six inches of water. His shoulders slumped against the opposite side and his head tilted back, staring blankly into the sky, rigor mortis already setting in. Davies' body, nor his home, showed any signs of violence, Dry towels and slippers awaited him next to the bathtub. Well, hold on
1: a second, though, because if the if the temperature was set to 79 degrees, I mean, it's that's going to speed up. That's going to speed up Sp- the, the decomposition. Decom.
0: that word. It's hard. The decom. Thank you. The April rent check sat atop his dresser in the bathroom. Investigators also found an empty vial of Valium dated March 13th. It was fifty tablets of two milligram Valium, entirely empty. So, Don, you remember when phones used to ring and you just had no idea who was calling? While well, they were going through his yeah. apartment at six p.m., Davy's house phone rang, and one of the an- one of the investigators answered, "Hello."
1: Did you want me to answer that question? No, do you want to give me no, a chance? No, sorry, to answer I was just going or? with it. It was you a rhetorical. Just, you, you, you asked totally me the question, but you said my name, and then and then I didn't get to answer.
0: Rhetorical. But you, I do, do you remember. But I do
1: remember it, and oh. I. I I still don't like the phone. I didn't like the phone then, and I don't like it now. Love the phone. Yeah, I hate
0: the phone. Jerry? Jerry? It was a woman's voice. Then silence. Then the line hung up. Five minutes later, another phone call. He answered again and heard only breathing for one minute before the line went dead. The autopsy on Davies conducted the following day, March 28th, revealed symptoms consistent with asphyxia by drowning. Organ and blood samples were sent to the state crime lab for further testing the initial conclusion was death by accidental drowning. Every resident of the building was questioned and not a single person saw anyone come or go from Davies' apartment. His body was evaluated again. The coroner searched everywhere for a puncture wound. Certain, Davies injected himself with a chemical, but there was nothing. The prevailing theory was that Davies died by suicide. Although at this point in Wisconsin history, nobody had ever died from a Valium overdose.
1: It was the 70s. How?
0: I I don't know. Really? At that point, nobody had ever died from an OD on Valium. People had overdosed, but not died from Valium in Wisconsin in the 70s. The final letters he sent were being called suicide notes. And he had sent four in total. So he had also sent a letter to the Madison Police Captain of Detectives and Don Eisenberg, It appeared Davies wanted to provide irrevocable public statements regarding his guilt and Barbara's innocence. But Lulling had to wonder, does a man who wants to die by suicide arrange coupons, shave before bathing, write a rent check, put out slippers and towels? None of it added up. April 7th, 1978. The arraignment of Barbara Hoffman went on as scheduled, The halls outside the courtroom were buzzing with reporters, camera flashes, and onlookers. It was a madhouse media blitz of shouted questions. They weren't allowed inside the courtroom, but on the way in, madhouse. The court proceeding was a barrage of objections by Eisenberg, who demanded everything be tossed out in light of Burge's confession. The case was reckless and without evidence. He refused to enter a plea Therefore, the court entered a plea of not guilty for Barbara.
1: Not Burge's confession. Uh, Davy's confession,
0: right? Davy's confession, excuse me. Yes. Thank you. She remained silent throughout the proceeding and was allowed to leave through the judge's private quarters to avoid the crazy throng of onlookers. As Barb left the courtroom for the first time, she turned and stared. The entire room was full of men, her lawyers, the prosecutors, the judge, the bailiff, Everyone except crime reporter Anita Clark, and the court stenographer was a man. On April 12th, an expert document examiner determined the letters written by Jerry Davies were authentic, written with the same pen, at a normal speed, and without any sign of duress.
1: Were they compared to samples of his, though?
0: Absolutely. Yep. Remember earlier when William Garrett was offered a favor in exchange for information, but the DA declined. Is this
1: rhetorical or do you want me to answer? I, I, I do remember okay. because you told me to remember it. So I did. I figured it was important.
0: So the DA refused to barter with Garrett and he refused to barter with Eisenberg when they initially called, but detective Oling, detective Lulling, was old school. He was playing by his own set of rules and he met with a crime boss Lulling figured if Garrett's information was that good and it could make the case, he'd convince the DA to make a deal. It turns out Garrett, as an owner of Jan's, had a long history with Barbie, as he called her. That just makes me feel icky. William Garrett treated women like objects. He was a pig and a pimp, and it was evident in the crude way he spoke about women, particularly about Barb. He told Lulling Barb liked to play games. That she manipulated her clients but her boldness and intelligence were actually stupidity according to garrett barb's master plan was to marry some lonely old fool take him to mexico poison him with botulism then return to the u.s where the body would be immediately cremated and she'd collect the insurance money garrett learned about this after barb had bragged about the plan to one of his stooges during an intense conversational drug session After too much wine and one too many Quaaludes, Barbie couldn't shut up, said Garrett. She went into great detail about her extensive background in biochemistry and that she could cultivate botulism, place it in his meal in Mexico, and nobody would think twice about an old guy dying from food poisoning there. Garrett routinely invited himself to Barb's apartment for what he called his routine suck and fuck.
1: Oh, okay. That's just...
0: During one such invasion, he noticed notes written on a refrigerator chalkboard about a marriage license and a passport. Now, he pressed her for details about the life insurance murder plot, and Garrett, she tried- Garrett did. Yep. Okay. Yep, Garrett, went, he he pressed her, and she tried to deny it, but eventually gave in and told him everything. She planned to murder a shipping clerk named Gerald Davies with botulism in Mexico and collect $750,000 in life insurance. She detailed the operation and discarded his arguments against the idea. According to Garrett, he tried to talk her out of it.
1: Well, I mean, he seems like a stand-up guy, so I'm sure sure he's trustworthy. I'm sure sure he absolutely tried to say, no, 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 that's probably not a good idea. That's that's not that's not good, Barbie.
0: According to Garrett, Barb said the operation was being funded through bank loans signed, co-signed by Barb's clients.
1: So so barb was was she working
0: like was she working something to she she had she had clients a lot of these clients private clients on the side and when she would get them out in these private situations she would threaten to expose r- these rich cheating husbands to their wives, pressure them into co-signing loans from banks, and then she'd immediately default them on after getting the money
1: but it is a they they keep, keep
0: paying it because like they don't want their wives to know they're They're you know screwing the massage parlor queen of Madison.
1: It is a completely legal sensual massage. So I don't know. I mean, according to that law,
0: everything official.
1: You guys, that was supposed to be funny. Come on, (laughs) was my was my delivery not there? That might not have been there. I was dripping with too much sarcasm. It sounded serious. (laughs) Sorry, I'll be better.
0: Cops were like, well, why don't you come tell us this right away? Garrett, uh, he said, well, I didn't really think much about the matter until the event investigation opened up on Berge's death. And he said, well, that's when I was presented with the opportunity to benefit from my knowledge. Lulling and the investigative team corroborated several aspects of Garrett's story, including the application for marriage license and for passports. The loans, each co-signed by different men with impeccable credit, were confirmed. Barb defaulted on all of these after just a few payments, and this list was extensive, and Lulling contacted every single one he could find. Barb was masterful at selecting men of importance who'd pay to cover up their infidelity. On the other end, she also picked up many of the Lonely Hearts clients like Davies and Burge. With all this new potential ev- all this potential new evidence, The DA caved in to Lulling's agreements to lighten the sentences against Garrett's criminal pals. It was a complicated case, but now Lulling was confident they could link Hoffman to a premeditated double murder. In the month following Davies' alleged suicide, Hoffman filed a claim on his life insurance. With no criminal charges, her claim was valid, Ruth Davies was livid. That money was hers and Hoffman should be in prison. The company delayed payment due to the extenuating circumstances, but they could only stall for so long. Don Eisenberg's efforts and demands as Hoffman's defense attorney were scrupulous. After numerous hearings, the judge was finally ready to make a decision by mid-August. Then the prosecution presented more new evidence. Examiners at the state crime lab discovered trace amounts of cyanide in Davy's organs, double the lethal dose. This prompted them to get a look at Burge's blood. Burge had 37 times the lethal dose of cyanide in his system. I think that one, that one,
1: she got a little excessive with that one. I mean, double and 37 times do, the, the the
0: dose. It's That's very, uh, very lopsided. A little bit. The cyanide was discovered after a perceptive tech in the state lab caught the scent of burnt almonds. Likely, that smell was missed by the original coroner because about one fourth of the population is entirely oblivious to the smell.
1: To the smell of, of burnt, burnt almonds. almonds. Yep. How do you walk through the mall at Christmas time and not smell them? Like. Wow, I did, not, I did not realize that. That is
0: interesting. Detective Lulling believed Hoffman poisoned Davies with a pot of chili on Easter weekend. It was a poisoning that left no trace on, unless specifically tested for. And if not for the lab tech catching the scent, they never would have tested. Lulling proceeded to map out all the possibilities Hoffman had to steal poisons while studying biochem at university. In fact, the lab was missing cyanide, which was presumed stolen, possibly coinciding with Hoffman's time there. This caused yet another delay in trial. On November 16th, Barbara Hoffman was again in court. And after an unprecedented Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling... Television cameras were allowed into courtrooms for the very first time in state history on cable television. It was now 10 months since Hoffman's arrest for the murder of Harry Burge. Barb arrived with Don Eisenberg in his ivory Jaguar XJ6, an intense fervor spread across the courthouse. As Eisenberg began his arguments for a change of venue and a change of judge, the DA interjected with a startling statement. The prosecution wished to dismiss all charges against Barbara Hoffman.
1: Okay. I feel like I feel like there's going to be a reason.
0: Well, there was an obvious WTF reaction from every person in the room and those watching on cable TV, and you? Clearly, yeah. Eisenberg could hardly contain his composure, a celebratory glee smeared across his face as he gladly announced acceptance. The murder charge was dismissed and court adjourned.
1: Well, who is the bigger fish, Uh, basically? I mean, there's got to be something...
0: Eisenberg Eisenberg quickly helped Barbara into her wool coat and escorted her through the gurgling horde of reporters and flashing cameras. Everyone was jostling for a look at the innocent victim, the innocent vixen. On the second step from the courthouse with freedom just in sight, Barbara Hoffman was ambushed by a pair of Madison cops who shoved the new criminal complaint in her face and declared Barbara Hoffman was under arrest for double murder.
1: Wow, I mean, that that delivery was that was good. Um, <laughs> why? What? Why? I, I mean, was this was this just the seventies? Like, did they have to go through the the, the pomp and circumstance? I, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm beating against the seventies. I'm sorry. It was just reading about it. It just it seemed like a weird time. It was dramatic. I
0: mean, it's cable TV. Know, people are watching. They wanted to make it. They wanted ratings, probably.
1: I mean, it seems like. A little much ado about nothing, but uh, whatever.
0: Panic washes over Barbara. Eisenberg is furious, and he bodily forces himself in between Hoffman and the officers, refusing to let them arrest her. They nearly come to blows. There was wild reactions. There's a roaring crowd. And the theatrics of this scenario and the people freaking out everywhere just cannot be overstated. Under Wisconsin state law, a criminal charge can be refiled if new evidence is found. Again, the cyanide
1: could have probably done without all of the you know the craziness. Oh, they but... wanted it. Wow.
0: The cyanide, Garrett's testimony, bank statements, even Burge's suicide note were all considered new evidence. Prosecutors never intended on letting Hoffman go anywhere. The new complaint conjoined the murders so that both cases were tried simultaneously with the same jury. Eisenberg grabbed his client charged into the nearest courtroom in session with the horde of people behind him, promptly sat down in front and demanded the complaint be immediately reviewed and considered for bail. Judge was not impressed, but he did it. Hoffman's bail was set at 15,000 bucks. Her parents put up the money. The next hearing took place on April 16th, 1979. The prosecutors weaved a complex and sinister tale of deceit, Sex, love, money, and manipulation that resulted in two lonely, innocent men being trapped in Hoffman's web of murder. The defense claimed Burge was murdered by Davies in a fit of rage and jealousy. He implicated Barbara to punish her for the infidelity. And how could the state choose to prosecute a woman based on some cockamamie plan to kill her husband with botulism and collect insurance money? A plan that only became known to investigators after they promised to give an easy plea bargain to a renowned criminal. Before his untimely death, Davies had told police Barb was guilty, then he told him she was innocent, and then he claimed all the guilt to himself. So which version of his story was to be believed? A judge ordered the trial would go on. When the trial finally began, two and a half years later... Prosecutors weren't confident of a conviction. Their case had no traceable, tangible, physical evidence to link Hoffman to Burge's murder, and their best witness, Davies, was dead. And even the testimony of William Garrett claimed she intended on using botulism, not cyanide. Plus, Garrett's underling who originally passed on the information about that story, nowhere to be seen. Investigators meticulously poured over the financial records of Davies and uncovered several payments to a company called Labs 2As. Davies ordered and paid for chemicals, including cyanide, as well as lab equipment. It was delivered and signed for at his apartment. The salesman who took the order said it was placed by a woman.
1: I'm no expert, but I feel like that's a pretty fair amount of uh, good circumstantial evidence. Uh, I mean,
0: they've got it stacked up. It's, yeah. Now, instead of suggesting Hoffman stole cyanide from the university, prosecutors instead linked Hoffman to the purchase of the chemicals from the company labs. In a truly sad twist of irony, Jerry Davies signed and paid for the very poison used to kill him. Hmm. Yet nobody witnessed Hoffman with either man on the day they died. She left no fingerprints. The method was cyanide, but there was no evidence she ever possessed the substance. It was a complex and sprawling case with many intricate details. Jury selection began on June 15, 1980. By the time it started, Sam Serro was already out after serving a mere fraction of his reduced four-year sentence granted by Garrett's testimony— he was originally facing in fifteen years. He did less than a year. Cable TV broadcast this trial in its entirety. Imagine the dozens and dozens of clients whose assholes were clapping shut at the thought of their infidelity with the infamous parlor queen Barbie getting exposed on cable TV during the trial.
1: It was like uh, it was like when Heidi Fleiss's book and uh, her books it became. <laughs> public and everything. And people were shitting razor blades,
0: all these like, nervous you know? professors. Shit. And, I hope my old lady ain't watching this. And they bring yeah, my name up. Yeah. One of those guys and, that she I co-signed a loan for her. And
1: Hey, I am not, I am not kink shaming. I mean, dude, no. do, do what you need to do, do. What you gotta do. It's your marriage, not mine, whatever, but
0: there's, there's a reason I mean, you don't want it known. Okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, if you're uh if you're a little worried about someone talking, <laughs> I,
0: The many liaisons who lived within the criminal underworld of Madison knew Garrett's ruthless reputation and openly wondered if Hoffman herself wasn't a pawn in one of his grand schemes, perhaps as a form of revenge for her departure from the parlor scene. Others speculated the validity of his botulism story. The timing was awfully convenient, and it sure did benefit a lot of Madison criminals a few people with intimate knowledge of the parlor business claimed William Garrett viewed Hoffman as a threat and a business rival. Reliable estimates suggest she was making as much as $40,000 a year at the parlor after tips and including her side scams. Allegedly, Hoffman attempted to purchase a silent interest in one of Garrett's burlesque bars using a lawyer friend Al Mackie as a front, but Garrett caught wind of the deal and squashed it. He resented her ambition and he resented her ability to take clients away from his businesses through his influence in the skin trade. Garrett decisively cock blocked several of Barbara's maneuvers to level up in the game. He made her an exile. Quick,
1: uh, quick fun fact, 40,000 in in 1970. I just picked it is about $307,000 today. Yeah.
0: Wow. Over the years, throughout the many proceedings of Barbara Hoffman, she was portrayed as a brilliant scholar led astray, a deviant sex doll, a conniving vixen, a victim of male exploitation, a doped up femme fatale. And it's likely on some level, all of these were true. In an odd scenario approved by the judge a law student was allowed to read the statements of Jerry Davies as a prosecution witness taken from his confession on December 23rd, 1977. The reading performance transfixed the courtroom in a way that the quiet, nervous Gerald Davies never could have. The reading became almost theatrical. It was haunting. It was as if Davies bore witness against Hoffman, but without any scrutiny. Three days into the trial, one juror, a maintenance man, was replaced after he made threats of intentionally causing a hung jury.
1: Was it because he was a client?
0: Good, great theory. It was actually because he was a total rage baby. After, was, after he was only allowed two cans of beer per night, he demanded a case of beer per night or he'd hang the jury. He got I the boot. He's uh, like-, like, like, no, case of beer or I'm hanging this jury. He was out. Judge reprimanded him. He was out of there. At the trial, the manner of these victims' death by cyanide was described to the jury. Death by cyanide was not instant. Victims eventually suffocated after their lungs hemorrhaged, a headache followed by convulsions and a struggle to breathe. Vomiting usually occurs as the body loses loses its ability to gain oxygen. It could take anywhere from two to seven minutes. But on a full belly... A victim could go through all this suffering for as long as 20 minutes. When no food was present, cyanide left the cherry color in the stomach. But on a full stomach, that doesn't happen. Prosecutors implied it was no accident these men died after large meals. Garrett became a star witness for the prosecution and... He delivered an arrogant yet dashing performance, relishing the entire time that he could openly admit on the stand that his income was earned through vice. The vocal combat between him and Eisenberg was gladiatorial in scale. Throughout the entirety of these court proceedings, as stories blazed in newspapers and on television about who she was, it appeared Barbara Hoffman was completely alone. She had no friends or support ever in the courtroom, aside from that of her lawyer. The prosecution rested after calling nearly 100 witnesses and using 400 exhibits. For the defense, fewer than a dozen witnesses, with the stars being Barbara Hoffman's parents. Barb's mother, in particular, gave an emotional, heart-wrenching testimony depicting the tragic episode of her daughter's life The mistake of working at the parlor, the danger she felt in leaving, particularly from William Garrett, and the need to change her name to leave that life behind. Finally, her parents offered Barbara Hoffman's first and only alibi. They visited their daughter several times each year, particularly on holidays, and they actually stayed the night with Barb on Christmas Eve and during the Easter holiday. Barb's dad slept on the couch. They were with her during the same time, prosecutors alleged she was murdering. Hoffman's parents claimed to be very light sleepers who heard no phone calls or disturbances, and the car identified by the Bible reading witness was in fact theirs when they left early that Christmas morning. Eisenberg's final closing Defense didn't focus too much on refuting the abundance of circumstantial evidence. It rested heavily on this alibi, an alibi that was almost certainly perjured. When asked why they didn't come forward to police immediately with the info, Hoffman's parents told the court they were never contacted by investigators or asked to be interviewed, suggesting you wouldn't have believed us anyways. And by the time they got wind of everything, it was already in Eisenberg's hands, and their lawyer advised them not to speak of it until it was time.
1: Okay, I, I mean, this is it. it it's all annoying. It's bothering me. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like the the that lieutenant. I can't remember his name. Lulling. Lulling. I mean, he was at this point. I mean, he was clearly a good cop. I mean, he did mostly a good cop. Mostly like the the, car was in the right place. Yeah. And like the old fashioned police work seemed to be his, um, you know, I would say like the equivalent of, um, uh, Mel Gibson in, in, uh, um, lethal weapon. Gosh, when I delivered like, my delivery sucks, you guys. I'm sorry. Like, I can't even make a joke I don't, I don't, today. I don't
0: think he um, popped but, his shoulder out at any time. But, so like, but,
1: but you know, uh, like, he was kind of renegade. Like, ah, screw this. I wrote the book. Like, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. And... So you mean to tell me that he didn't actually go talk to her parents? He I didn't.
0: Mean, no, he really didn't. Really? Yes. It was, they, that was kind of a big mess up on their part. He confronted sure. her at their house never sure. once had but a talk but with But didn't him talk to the, the
1: parents. Yeah. And
0: something else of note, just uh, this was Lulling's final case. Oh. He had actually retired about two months before this finally went to trial. Well, because this was it went his on final for about 20 years. I mean, final murder case. In closing arguments, prosecutors brought out phone records showing several calls to Barb's house at odd hours that her parents' light sleepers resting on the couch all night never heard. Then, prosecution outlaid the scrupulous details of how everything happened and how Barb was involved. It seemed insurmountable. Eisenberg tried hammering home that Barb was an innocent young girl taken advantage of, but it was a flawed focus. She was 31 years old now and was at least somewhat hardened street smart and aware from her time as a masseuse she i mean and she did tons of quaaludes smoked joints all the time whipped men in secret rooms this was not an innocent girl and to suggest the jury should think of her as such was totally naive and and bad on his part he's a was a great was a great lawyer in some respects some people considered him at the time to be one of the best criminal lawyers in the whole country i guess if the mob is hiring you you know your shit But anyways, I digress.
1: I don't think you're shit. I think the mob is hiring you. I mean...
0: He ended by telling the jury Barb is only guilty if they think her parents would lie to them. Oh Dang. It was a long and wild trial lasting almost two weeks. When the jury went into deliberation, prosecutors did not feel confident. 14 hours later, when it was announced a verdict had been reached, their confidence sunk even further. In long trials, such a quick turnaround in decision usually meant a verdict of innocence. Eisenberg's office put cases of champagne on ice to prepare for the celebration. The media would be invited to the party. For this announcement, the courthouse was nearly empty. Only 30 or so scattered spectators were present. Hoffman's parents had already traveled back to Park Ridge. The judge read, On the charge of murdering, Jerry Davies, the jury finds the defendant not guilty.
1: Was it a joke? Was it a joke? I mean, was somebody going to like bust out
0: of a cake and be like, just kidding.
1: Guilty. Because it's the 70s. It's what we do. Gotcha.
0: As the collective gasp spread over the courtroom, the judge loudly continued on the charges of murdering Harry Burge. The jury finds the defendant guilty. She was taken away in handcuffs and not allowed to stop at home for personal belongings.
1: Well, duh. I,
0: I mean, it was, a, they had said she would. they were going to let her do it. And then well, they changed the their
1: mind. Great idea. Pointing that out. I mean, like they their
0: they said she wasn't do it. Eisenberg argued for that.
1: Well, I mean, he seems like a cool guy, but
0: the wildest court case in Wisconsin state history finally reached a conclusion. Hoffman was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 11 years. At sentencing, she made a singular statement. Quote, I did not commit the crime of which I was accused and of which I was convicted. It is the only statement Barbara Hoffman has ever given. Hoffman eventually split the $20,000 life insurance policy of Jerry Davies with his mother, Ruth.
1: Oh, well, I'm glad. I mean, at least she's got $10,000 in commissary, that money. That's nice. <laughs> wow.
0: Later, it would come out. The Hoffmans said they drove from Madison to Chicago on Easter Sunday, March 26th, 1978. But that drive would have been impossible because of a ferocious blizzard. The interstate was closed. O'Hare Airport shut down for days. The Hoffmans could have been prosecuted for perjury, but it was let go. These parents were in a, put an impossible situation oh,
1: bullshit they were not
0: they I, f- I feel like they were no. in the mid 80s eisenberg was eventually disbarred and denied reinstatement several times hoffman dropped all appeals after the first one she applied for parole only once after her 11 years were up was denied and she has never tried again she is in Toshida prison to this very day She has never spoken a single word to anyone about this murder. Questions and theories about the truth of this story remain to this very day. Why bother killing Burge for less money, especially after investing so much more time, money, and effort into Davies? The Burge payout was $20,000 in a small house. She had $750,000 on Davies and again, the question, why killed Burge in a third-floor apartment? It created so much more difficulty in concealing the murder. Aside from the fact that these men were poisoned, why were their murders so different?
1: Because Davies, things change. That's why. Uh,
0: no. Shit changes. No, it's not why. Davies' body only contained twice the lethal dose, the body of Burge, 37 times. Hoffman, as a biochemist, knew precisely how much cyanide to use. One body was... Beaten and battered and bruised, the other perfectly clean and unmarked. What if Hoffman never intended on killing Burge? What if his death was an accident? Say he shows up to Hoffman's apartment after his Christmas party. Maybe she's not home, so he fixes himself a cup of instant coffee, which he always did, and he pours, gets himself a teaspoon of sugar. Only that was no sugar in Barb's cupboard, it was cyanide. Get this: thirty-seven times the lethal dose of cyanide, approximately equal to one teaspoon.
1: All right, well that that checks out. I was going to say, like you know, just in in pure fashion of this this story, like you know, she was making chili and she like fumbled with Very the thing, fair. like oh my gosh, and then
0: that it's like oh, it fell that-
1: in the thing. Here, eat it all. I, it, like Barb it just
0: seems weird. Barb had everything ready and in place for the kill on Davies. Or maybe the, or maybe again, she had everything in place to kill Davies. Maybe she got, well, then she got too high and blurted her plans out to Garrett, who ruined it for her. So she pivoted to use cyanide instead of botulism, storing the crystallized poison at home. Burr shows up unannounced to plead for her love. She makes him a cup of coffee, but she's stoned out of her mind on Quaaludes and accidentally gives him the wrong sugar. He starts dying and gets violent. Barb panics, kicks him in the dick, grabs the nearest thing to her—a frying pan—and smashes Burge over the head with it.
1: I honestly, I, I, I don't want to give that one cred, but I mean that one sounds more likely. I mean, it's right out of a movie, and really truth is, is stranger than fiction. Like no one, no wonder we ended up with court TV, and uh, like no wonder we're all addicted to murder. It's because of it's because of shit like this and Perry Mason. Yeah. Like this is why. Like this is.
0: Yeah, prosecutors and they talk about this, but they never truly believed Harry Burge was meant to die that night. But when he did, Barb got caught in her own web. Davies was always the true mark. And it's also still possible it was Davies who murdered Burge. Killing Burge and hiding the body wouldn't lead to the easy life insurance payout. And his death doesn't line up at all with Garrett's Mexican botulism honeymoon story. It's also possible Garrett told police whatever the hell they wanted to hear so he could get his cocaine kingpin buddy, Sam Serro, the plea deal. If that's true, then the sex trade mafia really did frame her. As for Burge, maybe she never wanted to kill him. He hardly had any money. What if their relationship was genuine and she was going to live happily ever after with him after getting the million dollars from killing Davies? But There was no happy ending after Harry Burge mistakenly scooped cyanide into his instant coffee at Barb's apartment. Then she killed Davies to save herself before realizing Davies sent the letters recanting his statement. So instead of preventing her conviction with his death, Hoffman assured it.
1: I got a headache. What do you this, think? This thing gave me a headache. I'm, I, I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, unfortunately I want to say the frying pan thing. I, I, that's not that I, not that we speculate much, but that's, that's my, that's my call.
0: Once in a while, a case is worthy of speculation. I think it's quite clear. She did not kill both these men. It that's doesn't fair. make the 37 times. I it doesn't back. make sense, <laughs> you know? So to me, this one, she's guilty. She's still there. And I think that her, willful silence and refusal to ever be interviewed about this is related to her guilt for killing the man she might've actually loved. But that's my own theory. Can I,
1: can I also um, just point out like, uh, you know, so she was found not guilty of killing Davies, correct, but found guilty of killing Burge, who was the original murder charge that they dismissed and then they brought back. Yep. I mean, all could have been avoided just seems it's a little too dramatic for my blood like
0: sources for this predominant source the book winter of frozen dreams by carl harder also the book 50 wisconsin crimes of the century by marv balusek and milwaukee mafia.com just want to say this site has a ton of info related to sam Cerro, garrett and their criminal dealings these guys were absolute scumbags and they had friends on the inside of law enforcement, including during the Hoffman investigation. Of course they did. Duh. Isthmus.com slash arts. CapTimes.com slash news. A story by Marva Boveson in the New York Times and PeopleofHistory.com. You guys can see all of our merch at TooManyShirts.com slash Midwest hyphen murder. Thank you, Sioux Falls. That is our Midwest murder Thank tonight. You.
1: Thank you. I was getting lippy with So who wants to go on a date with
0: Barbara Hoffman? Wow. I was...